The New South Wales Gender Centre and the Trans Day of Remembrance. This is Counting the Dead. I'm Eloise Brooke. Listen to my cry. We're at a memorial. We're remembering a young woman killed in Wagga three weeks ago. That woman? Melody Polan Bruno, a trans woman on holiday in Australia from the Philippines. Melody is officially the first transgender person to be killed in Australia since 2014. And before that, 2008. And before that, 1985. Hard to believe? Yeah, it's hard to believe. I'm going to get into the specifics of each of these victims over the course of the podcast. I'll do more than that too, I'm hoping. Over the next six weeks, I'm going to go looking for Australia's trans and gender diverse dead. That's what brought me to the suburban funeral home in the first place. I want to just warn you that this podcast is going to talk about the dead talk about homicide and subjects that might be triggering for some people. This is not a funeral or a wake or even a vigil prayer service. It's a memorial. That usually means no remains or, as in Melody's case, not the final ceremony or resting place of the deceased. Melody is far from home and her journey is far from over. The turnout is minimal, but passionate. I'm here with nine other people, mostly members of the Filipino community, to honor the memory of Melody. Melody's body is here, and because she died a violent death in the Riverina, she was shipped about 600 kilometers northeast to the John Hunter Hospital in Newcastle, where she was handled by a specialist forensic unit. She was with the John Hunter unit for over three weeks, There's nothing particularly unusual about that. Regional Australians have to wait agonisingly long times for loved ones who die suddenly or violently to be returned to them. 16 days is not unheard of in some cases. It was longer for Melody and mostly because of the bureaucratic nightmare of repatriation in general. In the Philippines where Melody is from, repatriation costs are the responsibility of families and sometimes covered by work. In cases like Melody's, Migrante Australia, which is part of a worldwide alliance of Filipino migrant organisations, petitioned the Filipino consulate to have her shipped home. In Filipino culture, a body rather than an urn of cremated ashes is considered the best way to honour the dead. So that's the way she's travelling. Bear in mind that the yearly average income of one agricultural worker in Melody's region of the Philippines is about five to $600 a year. Even working in a BPO, that's local lingo for a souped up call center as Melody did, there's little chance her family could have repatriated her themselves. 
repatriation costs about 20 times an average yearly income in the Philippines. It seems that one of the main reasons that Melody is being repatriated home is that she was her family's main breadwinner. That apparently counts. There are two, let's call them irregularities, about this memorial that I'm going to come back to. The first, both awful and mundane at the same time, but the second kept quiet, shocking, infuriating, and one that distills the injustice at the heart of being transgender in Australia. But for them both to really make sense, we need to go back a bit. I've spent most of this year hunting for the missing dead. And not just any dead. Australia's transgender dead. You on the phone, boss? Yeah. Okay. I'll get to why I'm searching in a bit, but I'm not a detective. I'm kind of a journalist by the barest of line calls and a professional one insofar as I write and get paid for it. But there's a mystery at the heart of transgender deaths in Australia and not enough interest in the big picture. That's really where I got started. But first, I want to show you the kind of thing that has been happening since I started looking for our missing dead. Morning. Morning. Uh, yeah, that one was done. Got a minute? Really dramatic, yeah. Okay, this is Finn. He's the director of the Gender Centre. I'm gonna ask you a question about what stories you've heard about murdered trans people or dead trans people. I know you've spoken to me about stuff in the past, but this is the first time I get to record it. So I did come and have a chat with you once and you told me a story. Yes, about a church. The Uniting Church. There's a church on King Street in Newtown. Yeah. Many years ago. Many, the, the, the organisation was still over in, in Morgan Street. So about 10 years? Uh, easy 10 years. Um, well, no, probably a little bit more than 10. Okay. And they went to some uh, support, you know, Christian support thing or something or other, or it was a food drop-in or something or other, that they went to the church yeah. And the pastor refused them entry and basically said that they were an abomination or something or other. Yeah. Which meant that the person was so distraught that they took themselves off. Finn adds some more detail, but ends up telling me that essentially the woman he's talking about took her own life. Because what had happened was the woman was so distraught that she took herself off to the Harbour Bridge yeah. and she jumped off. <gasps> okay, that's Finn. Then there's the senior caseworker, Liz Seisman. So you told me a story about someone who... The hospital story. The, the hospital story? Uh, a trans woman who was quite... Um, there was two hospital stories. The first one was we know of a trans woman who was very, very unwell, who... Her last point of call to get support was to go to a hospital with her mental health. And at the time when she approached the doctor, the doctor actually vilified her, abused her, um, disrespected her identity, told her things 
this is of course hearsay from other people who happen to be present supporting her. Um, and she literally walked out of the building with no support, walked up to the top floor of the hospital and threw herself off the roof. Yeah. Um, so the person, that's not to say the doctor killed her, but the person auspice with the capacity to save her yeah. did not deliver appropriate care. Yeah. And here's the gender centre's counsellor, Candy, about another story. So the story that I heard as an urban myth was that one or a number of trans women were in the cross, in King's Cross, in the 80s or 90s and were purposefully mowed down by somebody driving a van. Right. And that this was not publicised or yeah. heard about. So any names, any no, nothing, nothing, just nothing, just a story. And that's it? That's all you've heard? Mm, yeah. Mm. That it was kind of hidden because it was okay, I think, was yeah. the message. Okay, stop. Before I get to the point of why I'm trying to find Australia's missing transgender dead, I want to share an observation. And it's not how bad people's memories are or that people love to talk about gruesome deaths or that it's weird that everyone I work with has some variation of this story. It's this. We aren't just fascinated by a good, in inverted commas, death story. It's that we need a story, any story, to make sense of death. If we don't have all the pieces, we'll automatically, unconsciously, fill the gaps ourselves just so that we can be comfortable with it. And more than comfortable. A different word. Survive. So we can survive it. The most interesting or shocking thing I found about asking work colleagues and friends about transgender deaths that they knew about wasn't that there were far more suicides or that a trans death by suicide was a kind of awful unspoken self-explanatory answer for trans death. It was how much of the gaps people were willing to fill themselves without knowing anything about what really happened. I'm trying to find Australia's trans dead because I want to do something about the unremembered dead. I started for a different reason, a couple of reasons actually, but I've been drawn back to one important conclusion. Nobody should be remembered like this, a vague, tragic death, the details of which are badly patched together from rumour, stereotype and hearsay. No one should slip through the cracks like that, but Transgender and gender diverse people have been for a long time now. And it doesn't look like it's going to stop anytime soon. Well, that's not how I started. I started because of Tidor. That's the Transgender Day of Remembrance. And this is how Tidor started. 21 years ago, TDOR starts in Boston, Massachusetts, 1998. One day after Thanksgiving in a suburb named Alston. Alston is a fairly well-to-do place, has a high number of college-aged kids, mostly because it's near three universities, including Harvard. That means in 1998, as in 2019, it was a major nightlife spot 
November in Boston means it's getting cold and this particular day, the 28th, was a windy rainless Friday. Sometime on this day, the day after Thanksgiving, an African-American woman is found stabbed in her apartment on Parkvale Avenue. Parkvale is a quiet street running off Brighton Avenue, the busy main street of Alston. Park Avenue, the murdered woman's street, is filled exclusively with long three and four storey brown brick apartment blocks. The name of the murdered woman? Rita Hester. And it was two days before Rita's 35th birthday. Rita had last been seen at a place two blocks away along Brighton Avenue called the Silhouette Lounge. The Silhouette Lounge was and is a popular neighbourhood bar, a dive bar, they would call it, but not in a divey sense, more in a neighbourhood bar sense. Those who knew Rita described her as friendly and well-liked. Another report said she was epulent, glamorous, and a sister diva friend with attitude, sassiness, and style. The only record of Rita's words were in relation to the trial of a Boston man who, three years before, had strangled another African-American trans woman, a 23-year-old named Chanel Pickett. Chanel had been recently fired from her job at a phone company in New York, apparently for being trans, and was staying with the killer and had, it seemed, been in a developing relationship. He was supposedly helping her get back on her feet after her firing. Rita's words had somehow turned up in a local LGBT newsletter and were about the verdict handed down to Chanel's killer, and I'll get to them in a minute. Because Chanel's murderer, despite being identified with Chanel at a club, despite Chanel's body being found in his apartment, despite the fact that he had killed Chanel, then slept the night in his bed next to her corpse before turning himself in, had pleaded not guilty, had used a trans panic defence. No murder conviction, not even manslaughter. He had gotten two and a half years for assault and battery. The Boston Phoenix at the time reported that six other women, trans women, had come forward to claim to have had sex with Chanel's murderer. Didn't matter. Mostly, it seemed, that being trans played against Chanel in the trial, as if it wasn't the man who strangled her that was facing the jury, but Chanel herself, and the acceptability of killing a trans woman of colour. On the Sunday, one day after Rita's body had been found, the Boston Herald broke the first story. The Herald dead-named Rita, that is, used her at-birth name, and referred to her throughout the article with male pronouns. Then two local TV networks had run similar stories Sunday evening. They called Rita a man and a transvestite who had been stabbed to death. On Monday, a second Boston Herald article dropped. Rita was a nightclub singer and a party thrower. She was described as a man who sported long braids and preferred women's clothes. Then the rival masthead, the Boston Globe, presented Rita as having a deceptive double life, misgendering her, of course, always with the misgendering. Rita's friends and the trans community were growing increasingly angry at how Rita's life was being misreported. On Tuesday, a second Boston Herald article, and this time it focused on Rita's sex work and two arrests for prostitution five years prior, and still with male pronouns. Advocates, community members and friends began to rally to try to push back 
And then on Wednesday, four days after her murder, the newspaper Bay Windows published their first story on Rita. Instead of being supportive or even sympathetic, Bay Windows, New England's largest gay and lesbian newspaper, deadnamed her, misgendered her, and placed her name, Rita, in quotation marks. Friday, finally, the community anger has continued to grow. Almost a week after Rita's murder, community members and supporters, friends and family, held a rally, followed by a candlelit procession to Rita's place to lay flowers. More news articles followed, TV reportage, and in response to community criticism of the way Rita was being misrepresented, the Boston Globe published an article that framed the angry, grieving community as more interested in getting their way on pronoun use than on Rita's murder. Rita Hester's murder has never been solved. It was reopened in 2006, but there were no signs of forced entry. Nothing was stolen from her apartment. There are no suspects, only rumours. Here are Rita's words just before the Chanel Pickett strangling verdict. I'm afraid of what will happen if he gets off lightly. It'll just give people a message that it's okay to do this. This is a message we can't afford to send. So what made the outrage around Rita Hester's murder different from Chanel Pickett's? Nothing on the surface of it. Chanel was murdered in 1995 and two years later, her killer stood trial, close enough to Rita's murder for it to be connected. Because Chanel, an innocent victim of a terrible crime, had really been the one on trial, along with the dismissive, transphobic media reporting, the ridiculously lenient sentence for an absurdly misguided charge, and Rita's community simply having no patience for a repeat. One last thing to add. The first Trans Day of Remembrance kicked off in San Francisco, not in Boston, the next year, 1999. Its date, the 20th of November, the anniversary of Chanel's murder, and almost 5,000 kilometres away on the other side of the US. Gwendolyn Ann Smith starts the memorial because she could see everyone was forgetting Rita's murder and that nobody in the US trans community even remembered who Chanel Pickett was. Like ghosts, Rita and Chanel haunt us, even in Australia. I have to admit that I've been involved in organising TEDOR for five years and I had no idea who Rita and Chanel were other than as names. And yes, there are so many dead trans people memorialised at TEDOR from around the world. But our own unremembered, unnamed dead are here too, just on the periphery. Forgotten, but not lost. Hopefully, not lost yet. This November 20, 2019, will be the 20th anniversary of the Transgender Day of Remembrance. For those who don't know, the Transgender Day of Remembrance is when trans people all around the world come together to remember the dead of the last year. And not just any dead, transgender and gender diverse people who have died violently in the 12 months since the last TEDOR. Now, I want to say that this is not a blanket statement and that transgender and gender-diverse people come together around TEDOR for a number of important reasons. But it's also true to say that TEDOR was created to honour a murdered trans and gender-diverse woman. There's a lot more to say about TEDOR, and again, we'll get to that. But here's my job. Find our missing dead, bring their names to Harmony Park, where we hold Trans Day of Remembrance in Sydney, 
and under the falling blossoms of Harmony Park's jacaranda trees, return them to our community. Here's the problem with that, and the mystery underlying all of this podcast. There is an international organisation called TVT, Trans Respect versus Transphobia. Since 2008, they've been collecting the names of the murdered dead from around the world. It's called the International Murder Monitor. Essentially, TVT are a tiny advocacy organisation run out of Berlin in Germany. TVT collects murders through news reporting, through police reports, and keeps the tally. Since they first started in 2008, which is about half the time that TDOR itself has been running, there have been 2,982 trans and gender diverse murders around the world. A number which, given the stats that come out of places like Brazil and the US, is certainly set to pass 3,000 this year, 2019. I said there was a problem, right? It's this. Australia has only contributed three names in 11 years. Only three transgender and gender diverse people have died by violence since 2008 in Australia. And I don't buy it. If it were true, it'd be wonderful. But it's not what the community believes is happening. The problem, of course, is that allegedly there are only a scattering of murdered trans people in Australia only a scattering of any kind of trans deaths, full stop. But again, nobody believes this. I've worked in and around the trans and gender diverse community in Sydney for five years. The stories and rumours you heard before, I hear those kinds of stories all the time. And when I said it was weird that my colleagues all had stories about dead trans people, it wasn't actually weird at all. It's actually pretty typical. So here's how we begin. With a bit more background, I started talking about Trans Day of Remembrance, and there's one piece of the story that's really relevant. Trans Day of Remembrance, founded 20 years ago in the US, came about because one, trans people were being murdered, and two, they were being forgotten. And what you'll hear in the lead up to Trans Day of Remembrance is the number. I'm doing air quotes around that, by the way. That is the International Murder Count. Since 2008, Trans Day of Remembrance has become more about the number, because it gets headlines. For example, last year, the murder count was 369. The year before, it was 358, and before that, 324. It's been on the rise at about 10% since TVT started publishing in 2008. It's not a straight 10%, it fluctuates, sometimes wildly, but 10% year on year is a good place to start. Melody Bruno's murder, it turns out, was relatively easy to find. Other deceased trans people, not so much. This is where my job gets tricky. I'm recording this episode in mid-October, and so far, Melody Bruno is the only new violent death that I've come across. So much for my investigation skills. Considering that I've been on the search for the dead, at least six months. It's like, on one hand, I understand that the reason that trans and gender diverse people die violently is complicated. And let me be clear that when I'm talking about violent death, I'm talking about murder, manslaughter, and suicide. I know that as a community, trans and gender diverse people experience far higher rates of violence, homelessness, and unemployment than the general population. 
And while discrimination laws have changed and continue to change, there's still stigma and disadvantage for a lot of trans and gender diverse people that contributes to the community being at a higher risk. There are other risk factors as well, like the way that the media frames transgender issues or simply ignores them, and the way that trans and gender diverse people experience going to the doctor, and the way that trans and gender diverse people experience police and the courts. We'll get to each of these in later episodes. But for now, I'm on the clock. Transgender Day of Remembrance is about six weeks away. And so far, I only have Melody's name to bring to the memorial. So here's where I'm starting. Three violent trans and gender diverse deaths committed in Australia in the last 20 years. Melody is one. The other two come from the international murder monitor that I mentioned briefly. The others? The high-profile murder of Mayang Prosecco in 2014, and another not quite so high-profile in 2008. Captured, it seems, from the year before the murder monitor was launched. That murder? Chrissy Pye, or going by their stage name, Little Romeo. That's three violent deaths in 20 years, and nothing, it seems, from 1999 all the way through to 2008. You can see the problem here. There's another option, and I have to consider it, and it's that maybe, just maybe, there aren't any murders or suicides to find. Maybe, despite disadvantage, violence and discrimination, there just aren't that many deaths to report. Melody, Mayang and Chrissy are simply tragic blips. Because even a quick look at the International Murder Monitor's own stats points out some pretty dismaying things. It's immediately clear that countries with the worst statistics on trans murders, like the US and Brazil, for example, share a similar gun culture. So that overall, the trans person most likely to turn up on the International Murder Monitor lives in Brazil, is a trans woman of color, a hairdresser or sex worker, and is most likely to be murdered by shooting in public on a street. Countries with easy access to firearms lead to higher trans murder rates. Looking at the names and violent deaths in the UK, New Zealand and Canada, a slightly different pattern emerges. Migrant trans women of colour are the most prominent murders and violent deaths. But even that isn't entirely clear. In the UK, New Zealand and Canada, most of these trans and gender diverse deaths sit in a nebulous area. These deaths look like domestic violence or more particularly intimate partner violence, that is violence carried out by a boyfriend or partner. But, and here's the but we see with Melody Bruno too, the distinction between reporting and understanding of what intimate partner violence is, is murky. When does meeting someone or flirting with someone become intimate? When does someone you meet become a boyfriend or partner? The answer to this is so often unclear, but it can make a huge difference to the way that violence is reported. And in the case of trans women, and especially trans women of colour, can so easily get lost in assumptions 
about trans women and sex work. So if this is a case of statistics, there's another important part of the puzzle if we're trying to work out whether more trans people die by violent death and are underreported or not reported at all in Australia. That question? Just how many trans and gender diverse people are there in Australia? So, I did a poll at the Gender Centre to see what the experts thought was at least a rough idea of numbers. How many trans people are there in Australia? I can tell you what the stats say. What do the stats say? Um, I'm pretty sure 1% is a popular um, figure thrown about. I don't know. I'm going to assume it's going to be pretty low, maybe 1% to 2%. Recorded. The guess is about 1% of the population. 1,260. <laughs> Why is 1,260 so funny? In 2016, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, the ABS, held its national population survey, which turned out to be a disaster. The ABS predicted that somewhere around 15 million Australians, about two-thirds of the population, were intending to fill out the digital version of the national survey online. Bear in mind that the survey was supposed to be a snapshot of one particular night in Australia, and only that one night, August 9th. But as people started to log in early evening, chaos ensued. The survey had completely crashed. The ABS servers were totally overwhelmed. One tweet I read at the time summed it up perfectly. Hey ABS, have you tried turning it off and back on again? But there was another problem, one that didn't come to light for months afterwards. One that was kept, if not quiet, certainly on the side. The 2016 National Survey had for the first time set out to get an idea of the number of trans and gender diverse people in Australia. The result? Absurdly low. 1,260. Actually, even this figure is wrong. As often happens, intersex people, those who were born with sex and or chromosomal characteristic variations, were mushed together with trans and gender diverse people. So the actual official trans and gender diverse ABS count is 1,220. There is one other person that I can ask about the transgender murder monitor stats, and in particular, why Australian violent death stats around trans people seem to be so underrepresented. Dr. Andy Keller-Delfos. In mid-April of this year, I was speaking about trans and gender diverse issues at a public event. I was one of two speakers. The other speaker was Andy. Andy, it turned out, was a forensic academic with a pretty extensive understanding of transgender and gender diverse people as the victims of crime. Hello. Hello. <laughs> How are you? Yeah. I'm good, thank you. How are you? I am okay. Yeah, it's quite windy and I've got some Yeah. Andy, I think to myself, is the missing piece of the puzzle to finding our dead. So, the most important question to ask you is. There have been three trans and gender diverse deaths in the last 20 years in Australia that have been recognised as a homicide. Mm. My question is, does this number represent a realistic number of those people who have died by homicide or suicide? Yeah. I mean, I think it probably doesn't. I think there's going to be a number of different issues 
um, that we'll find there if we were able to look more closely at the case file details of those cases. Um, the first thing is, A, how we know, document, whether a person is a member of trans and gender diverse community. And at the moment there is no standard way to document any of that, um, not in National Homicide Register, not in Coroner's Court, not in any official documentation as far as I know that would actually kind of trigger um, some kind of reporting mechanism that we could look at. Um, you know, then we might have the issue of, um, you know, whether those deaths have been reported as a homicide or not. Um, and we know in New South Wales, um, in particular in detail, that deaths were sometimes written off as suicides mm. or as accidents or as otherwise, you know, non-homicidal related, um, uh, related de deaths. Um, so we just simply don't know how many members of our community could well have be part of these figures. And we don't know how many members of our community there are in Australia. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that to the even if we did have that reporting mechanism, how would we be able to say, you know, um, accurately or mm. um, estimate um, the proportion of victimisation in our community? Because much like there's no reporting facilities within... Um, you know, kind of crime, uh, criminal justice related um, government sectors, there's nothing at the census level for our community. Um, and, you know, what was recorded at the last census is a gross underestimate of um, the people that, that, that we know, that even that we would know in, in our um, social groups yes. uh, as being members of that community. Yeah. Um, so if we don't have baseline data of population, we simply don't know about the levels of victimisation. Yeah. Um, we're not a, and if we don't know the baseline data of population, we don't know about the levels of victimisation, how are we supposed to identify services and particular needs of areas of that community that could well be going, um, I'm sure are, um, overlooked um, within criminal justice or otherwise health-related sectors or whatever it might be. Yeah, okay. Andy's insight was incredibly useful but it hadn't necessarily panned out into something, anything. In September, I had followed a lead from Andy and gone to Melbourne. Hi, Hello. Ella, nice to meet you. To the largest LGBT um, archive yeah. in Australia, Alga, at Thorn Harbour, St Kilda. How's it going? Yeah, not too bad. Cool. Warmer now. Yes, very it's much so. Out there. It is. Yeah. On a cold so, and rainy uh, Monday night in September, I sat in the ALGA offices at Thorn Harbour Health. Uh, they were probably collecting from the early 50s. Yeah, right, up okay. Until the mid 80s. All right. um, uh, they also, like, they were this slight, I met them a couple of times, had a private library. Okay. Um, little strangely obsessive about various things and okay. very interesting personal history. Like, there was like 20 volumes of scrapbooks just on boobs, amongst <laughs> many things. It was a quirky, quirky fellow. Not surprising. Um, yes. I didn't have much need for 20 scrapbooks of boobs. But Nick did show me a box of newspaper clippings on all things transgender from 1957 until 1983. I found one death, a trans woman given only a first name, Tallulah, a tall, attractive young lady who died in a bizarre crash in inverted commas in 1979. Her body was found thrown from the car, the driver dead also. The journal reporting the story was not sure how to label Tallulah. The story was based on a shock reveal 
and contained a lot of painful misgendering. But there was nothing more about Tallulah. Some hints of other things too. In August 2011, a report in a newsletter of an assault on two trans women in Adelaide, but nothing taken any further to the police. Also, another story in the similar time frame in Lavington, New South Wales. A man received a 12-month bond for assaulting a trans woman. But other than that, nothing. Other than that, a dead end again. I've just taken some notes with regards to what is uh, the latest update with regards to Melody's uh, uh, body being flown to the Philippines. But, uh, We're back at Melody Bruno's memorial. This is the update about Melody. Sometime tomorrow, Melody's remains will be driven to Sydney Airport. She'll fly to Batuan on the northern end of Mindanao. She'll be met by family and make the journey to Tandag and her final resting place. A uh, 31-year-old man was arrested on 22nd September afternoon. The man was charged with manslaughter and granted a strict conditional bail and released the same day. Here are two things that are unusual. I'm at a memorial for a transgender woman, a transgender woman of colour no less, killed violently and her body is present and she has a name and we're in Australia. That's unusual. As far as I can tell, that hasn't happened in Australia for 35 years. The second unusual thing, the thing I can't get my head around, the thing that I keep coming back and back to as the funeral home shivers around me from passing trucks. Melody's face was so badly bruised from the injuries she sustained that it was black. It was explained to me by an attendant that mourners and family members need to be careful not to touch Melody's head. Such was the extent of her injuries that her neck had apparently been broken in the ordeal leading up to her death. Do I believe in ghosts? No. But I am thinking of one ghost in particular. Chanel Pickett, a name that turns up again and again at Trans Day of Remembrance. Strangled to death almost 25 years ago. Do I believe in the restless dead? Well, not really. But I do believe the transgender community is haunted. Haunted by our missing and unremembered dead. We're not finished with Melody Bruno. Not by a long shot. by the New South Wales Gender Centre and graciously supported by the City of Sydney. If any of this has been triggering, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or QLife on 1800 
184-527. If you want to learn more about the Gender Centre or the Transgender Day of Remembrance, check out the Gender Centre's website on www.gendercentre.org.au. You can also contact the research team, basically me, if you have any stories about community members that you believe might be helpful or should be memorialised at this year's Transgender Day of Remembrance. The email address is countingtd at gendercentre.org.au. That's counting, C-O-U-N-T-I-N-G, letter T, letter D, at gendercentre.org.au. Executive producer, Finn Borg. Production, sound, engineering and publicity, Joan Westenberg. Writing, research and voice, Eloise Brook. Legals, Nick Stewart of Dowson Turco Lawyers. City of Sydney liaison, Jen Trinker. Production studio, Eagle Wipes Radio with special thanks to Angela Vithalkas and Teresa Colton. We'd like to thank the Lord Mayor and Deputy Lord Mayor of the City of Sydney, as well as all the councillors who have been so incredibly supportive and taken a risk on us. Special thanks to Nick Henderson of the Australian Lesbian and Gay Archive, Boyan Mallory and Migranti Australia, Dr Andy Caladelfos of the University of New South Wales. Special thanks to Alice Brennan of the ABC. A big thank you to the Gender Centre staff Liz, Candy, Emily, Robert, Imogen, Alex, and Ellis. Special thanks to Aquila Wolfwild at No Trees Web Design, Jenny Yowsey for Melbourne Accommodation and Transport, and of course, the extraordinary Claire Woods for basically everything. And lastly, the music used in Counting the Dead is by the phenomenal Ginger and the Ghost. Their music is available to download or stream online. And please follow Ginger and the Ghost on Instagram and Facebook. I know I do. Take care.